Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. I'd like to keep that passage open with you if you have your Bibles there. <clears throat> and uh, hopefully you uh, heard enough, they, they, that passage captured enough of your imagination to picture what was going on there. But uh, I want to uh, share a little bit of a story to begin with, uh, just for something that's going on with our, in our family at the moment that I think has relevance in, in relation to this passage um, at, at risk of oversharing. Uh, I have an uncle uh, who... Uh, has li- who, his life has been a pretty tragic story. Um, his, uh, his life has mostly in the last 20, 30 years consisted of living alone, very lonely, in essential squalor, um, uh, facing the consequences of drug, alcohol and gambling addictions. And uh, he's estranged largely from his family, his three children and, he, and his wife. And it's a really... There's a really messy story uh, to their family life and the amount of pain that he has caused to them. There's a real dark darkness about that family story. Uh, about three weeks ago, we found out that my uncle has been diagnosed with palliative... is now in palliative care and um, has been diagnosed with uh, cancer. He's probably not got very long to live. And in the midst of that, his children and his ex-wife, despite the very many mixed emotions they're wrestling with right now, have made this choice which has astounded me. And we, we spent some time with them over lunch recently and they've decided that they're going to enter back into his life and care for him as he dies. Um, I was... It's not a decision that I would have advised them to make, but they, out of love for him, have chosen to do that. And uh, when I say love, it's it's com- complex. Um, but what's astounded me over this this meal time with them is it stood out. My cousin, in particular, one of my cousins, uh, sh- she has said, uh, "I just don't want to see him die alone." I can't bear that thought, and so I'm going to care for him in this time. And it stood, stood out to me as this beautiful, beautiful example of undeserved love. There is no reason. They owe him nothing at all. But they've chosen to be kind to him, to show him great blessing, though he doesn't deserve it. Uh, and it moved me to see the way they've chosen to care for him. The reason I share this story is... We have, in, in that story I share, we have this dark backdrop, a dark family story. And the actions of my cousin and uh, my uncle's ex-wife shine in that story a little bit like rainbows against that dark backdrop. And their actions have caused blessing, brought blessing to my uncle, and that is now flowing over and extending to the wider family also. And it reminds me of this story in Ruth, because... This, uh, when we look at chapter 1 of Ruth, 
we have a very dark family story of a broken family, of a cloudy skies and circumstances that look horrendous. And then we come to chapter 2, and I think chapter 2 is like a rainbow against that dark sky, particularly seen through the courageous faithfulness of Ruth and the abundant kindness of Boaz, who despite all the darkness in the society that they're living in, choose to be faithful and to live the way of God and be a channel of his blessing to those around them. And so let's pray and then let's, let's dig into this, this passage here. Lord God, thank you that in the various valleys that we might walk, the tricky and sometimes just horrible circumstances that we might find ourselves in, against the backdrop of a dark and broken world at times, you are weaving a tale of redemption and hope. And in the book of Ruth, Lord, we see you weaving that tale through your people, manifesting your goodness in the lives, through the lives of people like Ruth and Boaz. And we pray, Lord, as we come to your word now, that your spirit would be encouraging and challenging us to be channels of your goodness and blessing to the people we meet and to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I want to ask you a question. Have, have you ever felt uh, empty? Have you ever felt empty? And maybe that's not a word that we often use to describe ourselves, but, but do you know that, that feeling of emptiness? I know some of us have, have experienced that. To have something precious taken away from you, to, to experience for a time that, that sense of purposelessness or, or numbness. There's a novel called The Bell Jar. I haven't, I haven't read it, but it, a character describes emptiness like this. I felt very still and empty, the way the eye of a tornado must feel, moving dully along in the middle of the surrounding hullabaloo. That, that feels like a really good description to me of emptiness. Have you ever felt that way? I, uh, I think, uh, when I think of characters in the Bible, Job epitomizes what emptiness looks and feels like, I think. Having lost all that he had and loved, he covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, crying out and lamenting for the afflictions that he blames God for bringing upon him. But Naomi is another character who knows what emptiness is like. In fact, she's a very Job-like character, at least in chapter 1. So she, she knows emptiness. Much like Job, she has lost everything. And it leaves her questioning at the end of chapter 1. We, we, we leave chapter 1 with her saying these words, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Empty. And that's how Ruth chapter 1 ends. With emptiness, with cloudy skies, with something verging on despair. There's a dark backdrop to this story of Ruth. 
It's a beautiful story, but there's a dark backdrop. And we get hints all the way through that there's a depravity in the society that they're living in. It takes place during a lawless and chaotic period of Israel's history. And you get this sense that there's threats and dangers lurking in the shadows, especially for two widows, one who's a foreigner. And even as you were listening to that passage before, did you pick up the hints? It's not safe for Ruth in the fields. She needs protection. She needs to be somewhere safe. There's this shadow lurking on the corners of our vision as we read through the the story. But it's against this dark backdrop and against this empty that that, that God is weaving a beautiful kindness of his kindness. So as I said before, we come to chapter 2 and Ruth and Boaz remind me a bit of that rainbow. We've got this dark sky, everything's looming, dark and ominous. And then these two characters enter the story. With courageous faithfulness and abundant kindness, they shine like beacons in the night sky. And the reason rainbows are such a symbol of hope is because they appear in that dark sky. And I think we can imagine Boaz and, and Ruth in that kind of way. They, their selfless love breathes life and hope into a world where everyone, it says, did as they saw fit. That's what the life was like at this time. So we're given a big clue about the purpose of the book of Ruth when you look at the setting. So the whole story takes place in Bethlehem. We, we, we know Bethlehem, but do people know what the word Bethlehem meant? I don't know if maybe Dane touched on this last week, Belinda. House of bread. So it's, it, it means house of bread, which is interesting when you think Jesus was born in Bethlehem, on the bread of life, house of bread. Maybe there's a connection there too. But Bethlehem represents provision and food and goodness. And the majority of the book, the, the, two, the second scene takes place in the wheat fields where they're gathering grain. The third scene takes place on the threshing floor. And the fourth scene is a scene of celebration. So I think the author's giving us a significant clue that this book is about God's provision for his people, especially in times of trouble. And then in chapter 1, the word turn was used over 10 times. Well, well in chapter 2, we, this tale of woe and despair takes a sharp turn as God begins to fill what was empty and as he begins to bring hope into Naomi's despair. So a great turnaround is about to take place and we're invited to listen and to watch and to delight in God's kindness. But the book of Ruth is... Quite a unique book. It reminds me a little bit of Esther. There's there's something about the book that reminds me of of Esther. But God's much more present in the book of Ruth than he is in the book of Esther. And God is regularly spoken of by the characters in this book. And there's this strong sense that God's hand is at work all the way through the story. But even though that's the case, the focus in Ruth is really on the human component of blessing how God is at work through the daily faithfulness of his people to manifest his abundant kindness. So we see God's hand at work, not by him necessarily directly intervening, but by him working through the goodness of the characters in the story and their faithfulness. And and so in chapter 2, it's particularly through Ruth's courageous faithfulness and Boaz's abundant kindness that we see God at work. 
And it's just in the very ordinary stuff of life. The ordinary actions. The book of Ruth, there's nothing extravagant about the story. The characters go about gathering grain, eating and drinking, toiling and labouring. And it's in those very ordinary actions that God's kindness is manifested. So Ruth and Boaz, they're not just passive recipients of God's kindness in this story. They're partners in channeling his blessing to each other and to those around them. I love that you shared that hymn before, Anne, make me a channel of your peace. Because I think this is a big theme in Ruth. How can God's people be channels of his blessing to one another and to the world around us? So chapter 2, let's, let's have a look at Ruth and then we'll have a look at, at Boaz. So chapter 2 begins with Ruth acting to provide for Naomi and for herself. So Ruth takes upon herself the role of provider for this small, broken little family. So much so that by the end of the book, Ruth is described as being better for Naomi than seven sons would have been. All through the story, it's Ruth's initiative that progresses events. She leads, she is strong and courageous, she is consistently faithful to both Naomi and God, even though she is a foreigner. And she's honoured for these qualities. One of the aspects of Ruth's character that the author highlights is her courage. And, and, and we, I mean, mentioned before, we get these hints that the wheat fields were not a safe place for a single woman, especially a foreign woman, to work. So Boaz mentions, he tells his workers not to place a hand on Ruth. Later, Naomi says, stay with Boaz because it's a safe place for you to be. So Ruth, as a widowed foreign woman, was especially vulnerable to unsolicited advances by the field workers because she had no official male protector. And in this time and place, uh, that was important. It was the culture that they were in, uh, to have someone who could intervene and step in if something went awry. Now, it's tragic that the fields were an unsafe place for Ruth. So th that wasn't just a cultural reality of the time. It's, a, it, it's indicated or suggested to us that this is an example of how depraved society had become during the time of the judges. But Ruth was wise and discerning. She looks for a field where she finds favour and can gather in safety. Now, she shouldn't have to do that. All of the fields should be safe for her to work in. But the author wants us to see that Ruth has this beautiful mix of courage and wisdom as she acts to provide for Naomi. And despite the many challenges, a widow, especially a Moabite widow, faced in such a society, Ruth acts with such dignity, honour and loyalty that even Boaz, who's a prominent figure in the community, can't help but take notice. Indeed, we get the sense that the whole town has begun to talk and murmur about this woman, Ruth, and her incredible loyalty to Naomi. There is something unique that stands out about her loyalty and courage. Then in verse 4, Boaz enters the story, and we learn that 
Boaz is the owner of the fields, he's well known in the community and he has a reputation for being kind. Now, typically an Israelite man would gain, well, they would have nothing to gain from being kind to a foreigner. It would have been quite standard practice if Boaz had have favoured the Israelite women and left just the meagre scraps for Ruth or nothing for her. Indeed, it probably would have been quite costly to his reputation to show favouritism to a foreigner. But as we read through the wheat field scene, we, we, we find that Boaz doesn't only show equal kindness to Ruth, he heaps upon her kindness upon kindness. Read back through that story this week and just notice how intent the author is on making it clear that one kindness after another, just like being poured upon her. And it's in, this would have been socially scandalous at the time too. So, so let's have a look at some of those kindnesses. So firstly, Boaz gives Ruth direct permission to gather in his field. He gives her advice about how to collect as much grain as she can and, and he gives her protection and invites her to drink from the water jars reserved for his workers. And that was a significant privilege. In the book of Leviticus, the law commanded that during harvest season, the grain, the leftover grain was to be left behind for the poor and the vulnerable to collect. But Boaz doesn't just follow the law in his kindness. He goes way above and beyond the law. He offers grain, protection and water. He's not just doing his civil duty, he's showing abundant kindness. But then his kindness extends even further. At mealtime, he invites her to his own table to dip her bread in the wine vinegar, a privilege extended only to the most favoured workers or to family members. So Boaz treats Ruth as this favoured guest at his meal table. You can imagine what some of the workers might have been saying at this point. What's going on here? Why is she getting all this favour? He then orders his workers to pull out extra stalks and leave them behind for Ruth. And as a result of Boaz's kindness, Ruth collects in one day enough food that, to probably feed Naomi and herself for about a week. Kindness upon kindness, abundant kindness. And Boaz's kindness shines against the stormy backdrop of the dark world they're living in. So we mentioned before how, how this wheat field scene was a turning point in the story and that it was the beginning of God working through his people to fill what had been empty and to, to bring hope into Naomi's despair. Have a look at the, the shift that takes place in Naomi's attitude as the result of Ruth's loyalty and Boaz's kindness. So where Naomi had previously blamed God for her plight in bitterness, she now expresses with delight regarding Boaz, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She's talking about Boaz there, but she sees that God's hand has been at work through him. And you, you can just imagine the smile that started to reappear on Naomi's face again as hope begins to fill her emptiness. She's heard of Boaz and his kindness. She knows that he as a close relative is able to redeem and provide for Naomi and Ruth, and we'll look at that in later chapters. And so 
Naomi, like any good mother-in-law, the cogs start turning. She hatches a plot about how she's going to make all this come about. And we'll read about that next week in chapter 3 in the threshing floor scene. As God manifests his kindness and provision through Ruth and Boaz, that cup begins to overflow to those around them. So Naomi becomes a recipient of that blessing as well. So too do Ruth's fellow gatherers as they collect all this extra grain that's been pulled up and left behind. So too will the townsfolk as they celebrate Naomi's redemption in the later chapters. It's, probably, it's, it's likely that the book of Ruth was written long after these events took place, probably during Israel's exile in Babylon, where Israel were experiencing life in a foreign land. So against the dark backdrop of Babylon, an idolatrous nation, the book of Ruth is a, is a story designed to teach God's people how important it is to continue on in courageous faithfulness and abundant kindness in the everyday moments of life. And I'm reminded when I think of that setting of, of other characters from the same time period like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who chose to be courageously faithful and abundantly kind to the people around them so that they became channels of God's blessing. So much so that even kings of Babylon came to worship the God of Israel. And I'm struck as well by how much Jesus embodied the abundant kindness and the courageous loyalty of Ruth and Boaz in his own time and place. As the Son of Man, Jesus would fulfill the human task of being a channel of God's divine blessing to the world in the most perfect, wonderful way, filling our emptiness with goodness and our despair with hope. That he would show us that to be human means to be an avenue of God's blessing to those around us. That is one of the human tasks we are given. That we've received such abundant kindness from God that our cups are meant to overflow to those we know and meet. And so like, like Ruth and Boaz, we're not passive recipients of God's kindness, sitting back and just waiting for God to, to act, but, but participants and channels through which his blessing comes into the world. All through Ruth, there's this real sense that Boaz, Ruth and God are partners in weaving this tale of redemption. They're in this together. From the beginning of Scripture, this has been humanity's calling to be channels of God's blessing. We receive the goodness of God and the call for humans is to spread His goodness across the face of the earth. And it's a calling that we've often failed at miserably. In, in, in the passage from Colossians that Nathan read earlier, there's this magnificent call extended to God's people. It says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Put on love which binds all these together in perfect unity. In other words, 
was to paraphrase that, be Boaz and Ruth in your time and place. Be God's goodness in the world, to the world, for the world. Fill what is empty. Shine like rainbows in a dark sky. In the very ordinary parts of life, the toil, the family, the eating, the providing, the walking down the street, engage in such tasks with kindness and courageous faithfulness. For this is who we were made to be from the beginning. That's my phone. That's embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been amazed at um, if a phone's going to go off during a sermon, it's right as you get to crunch point. Guaranteed. You, You... Pay attention to how often you you notice that from now on. We are called as humans to be channels of God's blessing to those around us, to each other, and to our world. So I wonder what it might look like. What might it look like to be courageously faithful like Ruth in our time and place? What would courageous faithfulness look like? For, for Ruth, this courageous faithfulness was a deep commitment to Naomi and to her God. It was a decision to turn away from the gods and the ways of Moab and commit to a new people and their God. I don't think we even begin to grasp what a massive decision that was for Ruth and the consequences it had for her. She would have been shunned and despised by the Israelite people. And yet she made that choice out of faithfulness and love to her mother-in-law to make that commitment. And it was a decision for her to say, I am all in. I'm totally committed now to Naomi and her people and her God. My old life is gone. This is who I am now. Courageous faithfulness. In our time and place, perhaps similarly looks like going all in and totally committing to God and his people, to to this family here, even when it's hard, even when it feels at times like God is not there or not listening. I bet Ruth had moments where she'd wondered, what have I done? As she was despised and rejected as the people of Israel were cruel and hateful to her. I'm reading a bit between the lines in the story there, but no doubt that would have been her experience as a Moabite woman. Maybe courageous faithfulness looks like, similarly for us, turning away from the comforts and the security of what we once called home, a little bit like Ruth did, from the ways of of the world in which we have grown up in and, and that has taught us to think the way we do, to turn, turn from the pursuit of worldly success and platform and all the things that our world says matters but are ultimately empty, to turn from the anxiety-driven chase for comfort and security or the temptation to give in to despair and illness and grief grabs hold, 
Instead, turning towards God and saying, I am all in, Lord. The old self, that old life, that old home, I leave behind for you. You are my all in all. I wonder also, then, what, what, what might it look like to be abundantly kind, like Boaz, in our time and place? In a society where the foreigner is brought in and sometimes cared for well, but often not, what opportunities are there for us to be a blessing? Boaz was abundantly kind to Ruth, though she was a foreigner. And, and we, we could talk about refugees coming into Australia, but we could also talk about just people, visitors coming in off the street into our midst. What opportunities are there for us to be a blessing? And in a nation that thankfully does have many avenues for providing support for people in need, how might we go above and beyond, like Boaz did, to heap kindness upon kindness, to not just do our civil duty, but going above and beyond and asking, how can I express the magnitude of God's abundant kindness to those around me? Ruth is a beautiful book. And, and, and perhaps, uh, above all else, the message of the book is this, that even when the world feels like a very dark place, even when evil and chaos swirl around us, even when we feel like we're walking through a very dark and deep, lonely valley, God's abundant loving kindness is manifested through the courageous, kind faithfulness of ordinary people in their everyday lives. God is at work filling the emptiness, illuminating the darkness. And he invites us, like Ruth and Boaz, to partner with him in that work. We're not just passive recipients, but partners in what God is doing in his world. Let's pray that he would help us to do that through the strength of his spirit.